Good morning, Rocky Peak. Hey, great to see you at the top of the service. We did some baby dedications, and I introduced myself. If you weren't here then, uh, my name's Michael. I'm one of the pastors, and just want to welcome you. Uh, whether you're joining us here, uh, kind of live here on campus, inside or out, or even uh, joining us online. And for those of you who are joining us online, I know this is sort of a kind of number one way people are checking out churches these days. Instead of going to a church, you actually check it out online. I'm sure there's some of you there today. And so we just want to invite you as soon as you decide this is the place, would come and join us because there's nothing like being here. Amen? It's like the power of that worship time. What a beautiful time. And so, hey, we're going to go into our time of teaching right now. And so inside your program is a green and white message note sheet. Um, and for those of you who are online up there on the top of your, your uh, screen, you'll see a, a section that says message notes. You can download whatever format you want. Um, but I'm excited to be continuing this teaching today. So if you guys are ready to go, I'm ready to jump in. You guys ready to go? Okay, let's pray. So Father, we're excited to be here in your house, or the house that you are building, your church, the ecclesia, the, the assembly of the saints, your people chosen before time to be adopted, to be forgiven, to be filled with your spirit, to be gifted, to carry out the mission that you've given us as we partner with you to really unleash a movement of passionate Christ followers in our area and across the globe. And so, Father, we come today, we just acknowledge you are our teacher and that all good things come from you. We just thank you for this gift of salvation that you've given us in Christ, as we've just sung about and Lord, now we, we know that it's through your word that you cleanse your church. Jesus, you said to your disciples that you were already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. And so Lord, we, we pray that you would speak your word to our hearts today in a way that cleanses and encourages, that builds up, strengthens, rebukes, corrects, whatever it is that we need to thrive, to bring honor and glory to you, Lord. We, we're here for you. We pray that you'd speak. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. Well, our story starts today uh, here in, in my office. And a lot of you may not know this, but in this worship center, up above the worship center, there's a row of offices, and one of those is mine. And the story starts many, many years ago um, in my office, and it was uh, about 5.30 at night or whatever, and they walked in. And from the look on their face, you knew things were bad. But of course, uh, I knew that before they came. And so as we, we gathered and we began to talk and began to learn their story, um, things were not going well for them in their marriage. They, they both claimed to be Christ followers. Um, they both have been here at Rocky Peak a long time. And you do know this, right? It's possible to be here at Rocky Peak a long time in life groups and not really be listening and following Jesus. You know that, right? You know that. They're like participation doesn't equal passion. <laughs> right? And so, so they, that was their story. And so, so as their story, it was clear that though they, they were followers of Jesus, it's what they claimed, that they hadn't really been living this out, especially in their marriage. And, and in particular, um, one of the biggest issues was that um, the husband had a, a deep anger problem. And he never really dealt with it. In fact, um, they've been married at this point about 15 years, and they had two kids. Um, 
And for about 15 years, she had been kind of trying every tactic she knew to kind of get him to face this issue and, and begin to work on their marriage together. But he, he hadn't really been willing, um, not only not to work on the marriage, but not to even admit that there really was a problem. And so as a result, uh, with every passing year, their marriage died a little bit more. Until at this point, they now have been living a parallel life for many years. And honestly, it's their marriage is on life support. Just kind of waiting for someone to have the courage to pull the plug. And, uh, and recently, something has happened that's given her that courage. That she's found her husband so emotionally distant that, that it's, uh, she's kind of connected with a guy at work a man at work, and if, if they're not already there, they're very close, they're headed for an emotional affair. And this new relationship has given her the courage to do what she's wanted to do a long time, and that's to divorce her husband. And yet, because they've been here a long time, because of their... I think love and respect for me that they agreed to come in and meet anyway. Well, today, we're continuing a series that we've been in for the last many months. It's called Christ, Culture, and the Cross. And for those who are new, and like I said, I know that every week, God is bringing new people here to our campus, people joining us online but for those of you who are new, this is an in-depth study of one of the most important letters for our time, I believe, um, in the New Testament. It's, it's written a letter written by one of the great leaders of the early movement of Jesus. We call him Paul or the Apostle Paul. And he's writing to a group of Christ followers, men and women, that he and his team had actually led to Jesus about three years before in a very strategic Roman city, about 80,000 people, in the south of Greece, in a city called Corinth. And so we call this letter 1 Corinthians. And if you've been here the last few weeks, you know that we've broken into the second major section of this letter that starts in chapter 5 and goes through chapter 7, where the Apostle Paul begins to tackle some of the issues, the conflicts, the chaos that's arising in their own personal lives, in their church, because because we've seen that though they've come to Christ, they're drifting back increasingly more and more and listening to the, the vision, the values, the voices of their culture instead of the vision and the values and the voice of Christ in his kingdom. And so today the topic on the table is, is marriage, uh, divorce, uh, remarriage, and the passage we're in is in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So if you have your Bibles, your apps, let's go ahead and open up and turn there. There in your note sheet, you see this section, Christ, culture, and the cross, marriage and divorce. We're going to pick it up where we left off last week at verse 8. So, so let's set the stage. If you were here last week, uh, we learned that, that Paul has recently received a letter from the church, an official letter asking him to weigh in on some important issues that they're facing in their church. What does it look like to follow Jesus now that we're Christians? And one of the first issues that he's going to address is this issue of marriage, um, sex in marriage. 
uh, divorce, remarriage, singleness. And if you were here last week, we saw that the first issue that he began to talk uh, tackle was this issue of sex in marriage. It seems that there was a, a group of people in the church that were suggesting that it's more spiritual uh, to, to not be married, to be single, to not practice sexuality, and if you are, if you are married, that to not have sex even in marriage. And if you were here last week, Paul said, no, that marriage is uh, a good thing, sex is a good thing, and if we're, in, if we're married, we need to be nurturing a strong sexual relationship. So we talked about that last week. So now he's addressed with that. He's going to begin to now begin to talk to different groups within the church that are kind of in different stations of life, married, single, and so on. And so in verse 8, he says, now, to the, who's he going to talk to? To the whom? The unmarried and the widows. Okay, so, so he's talked to the married, and he's talked to them about, hey, how it's important if you're married to really pursue a strong sexual relationship. It's not more spiritual not to have sex. It's more spiritual to have a good sex life. And so he's, he's addressed that issue. And now he's going to begin to talk to another group that he describes as the unmarried and widows. So from what we'll see later in the chapter, he seems to be addressing here, especially people that were once married, but are not currently married, right? So maybe they're divorced, uh, they've come to Jesus, they've already divorced, maybe they've, um, maybe they've, they've lost their spouse uh, through, through some kind of illness or something like that. And so he says, to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it's good for them to stay unmarried, as I do. So if you were here last week in verse 7, Paul said that he was single um, and he loved being single because it gave him great freedom to serve Jesus more as an apostle. Um, it wasn't that it's more spiritual to be single, it just gave him more freedom. And so, um, but he said, but I recognize that we all have our own different calling, our own gift. Some of you are married, that's your gift. Some of you are single, that's your gift. And so today he says, hey, if you're unmarried, uh, you're currently unmarried, maybe once married, but you're not, uh, you have a couple options. And one of those options is to remain single. And if you're content being single, then that's a great option. Catch this, it's not more spiritual to be married than to be single. And so he lays that down. He says, but on the other hand, in verse nine, if, uh, if they can't control themselves, and he's talking about sexually, then they should marry. In other words, it's not, there's no problem with getting married. That doesn't make you less spiritual. And he says, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. And so he said that if you, if you want to get married and you're struggling a lot with sexual temptation, there's no problem with that. That's not like a second, choice, uh, second best option, right? So he's talking now to those who are unmarried or widows. Now he's going to change the topic and he's going to talk to those in the church who are married and they're married to another believer. We'll see that in a minute. <laughs> but he says, to the married, so in verse 10, to the married, I give this, what's the next word? Command. Command, all right? So underline that word. This is not a suggestion. It's not a word of advice. It's a command. He says, so to the married, I give this command, but notice what he says next. Not I, but whom? The Lord. the Lord. So he says, I'm, I'm going to tell you, if you're married and you're both Christians, I'm going to tell you what the Lord says. He says, I want to be clear on this. This is not coming from me just as an apostle, that Jesus actually taught on this, and I'm quoting him, all right? So we'll come back to that later, what he means by this. But he says, here's the, here's the command. A wife must not what? Separate from her husband. Now, in our, in our world, we use the word separation 
and the word divorce to mean two different things, don't we? But in this passage, they're synonyms. They mean the same thing, as we'll see in just a minute. So he basically says to the married, I give this command, well, it's really not me, it's from the Lord, that a wife must not separate or divorce from her husband. But catch this, if she does, if she says that, hey, this is just too hard to be married to you, I'd rather separate, I'd rather be divorced, then he says, then she has two options. She can either remain unmarried, okay, so stay single, or she can be reconciled, kind of return to her husband, right? She doesn't really have the option instead of being remarried. He said, and a, and a husband must not what? Divorce. Divorce his wife. So see how they're using this word synonymously, all right? So that's the basic teaching. Now we'll come back to that later and you say, well, are there ever any exceptions? And yeah, there are, and we'll talk about that later. But this is a general teaching. He said in verse 12, now to the rest, and what we're going to see next, he's talking to those who are married, but they're married to a non-believing spouse. So they just came to Jesus three years ago, right? And a lot of these people, husbands and wives, they, they came to Jesus, but their spouse didn't. And so their spouse may be out worshiping Apollo, worshiping Aphrodite, continuing a pagan lifestyle. And so the question is, well, what, what do we do? You know, should we, should we get out of this relationship? I mean, if I'm, if I'm married to someone who's worshiping these other gods and so on, am I defiling myself by sleeping with them? Am I infected with their kind of idolatry? Hey, if we have kids, are my kids okay? Do I need to separate? Do I need to divorce in order to be holy? And so Paul's going to say, no, actually it's the opposite. The fact that, you're, uh, that you know Jesus is actually providing a level of protection for your non-believing spouse. And so he says, uh, verse uh, 12, I mean, uh, yeah, verse 12, says, to the rest I say this, and he says, now catch this, I and not the Lord, right? So, so Jesus never taught on this. He never addressed this issue because in Israel, Jews are married to Jews. They all believe in God. They didn't face this situation. The gospel is going out into a Gentile world. It's, it's creating new situations. So Paul says, Jesus didn't speak to this, but as an apostle, I'm speaking to this, you know, with the authority that God has given him as an apostle. So he says, to the rest I say to, to uh, this, I, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she's willing to live with him, stay with him, then he must not divorce her. Right? So if you're married to a non-believer and they're willing to stay, great. And he says, then it works for the wife too. If a woman has a husband who's, who's not a believer and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. And he says, here's why. The unbelieving husband has been what? Sanctified through his wife. <laughs> now, we don't know, honestly, exactly what Paul means by this. He says that there's some level of spiritual protection. It seems to be what he's saying. He's not saying that the person's saved and going to heaven because he's married to a believer, um, but this is the normal Greek word for the, to be made holy or set apart. So there seems to be some level of spiritual protection that comes to the spouse, and as we'll see, to the children because of uh, her relationship with the Lord. And so he says, for the unbelieving husband has been sanctified or set apart or made holy through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified, goes both ways, through her believing husband. He said, if this were not true, then your children would be unclean, but as it is, they're holy, they're, they're set apart, right? So um, uh, then he says, but if the unbeliever leaves, if they say, hey, I'm out of here, this whole Jesus thing is crazy, 
uh, I can't handle you, you can't go to my parties, you can't, you can't worship with me, the idols, it's really causing a problem. If the unbeliever leaves, let it be so, let him go, because the brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. And so Christians will understand this differently. My understanding of this is that Paul was, was saying that, hey, if they leave and they want to divorce you, then let them go. You're no longer bound in that marriage. You're free then to move on with your life and get remarried or whatever. And he says, now, here's the reason why you should let them go. He says, how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you'll save your wife? And honestly, we're not sure if Paul's talking about the staying or the leaving. In other words, like, hey, stay with them because who knows you may lead to their salvation. Or is he saying, uh, hey, let them go. You, there's no guarantee that by staying, you know, you'll, you'll save them. We're not sure. But the bottom line is that he says, hey, if you're married to a non-believer, uh, love them well, serve them well. And, and if they'll stay, then stay. But if they go, let them go. All right? So he gives these three kind of kind of basic instructions, if you're single, you've got two options. You can get married, or you can stay single. They're both good options. If you're married to a non-believer, stay if they want. You know, stay if they'll let you, but you, but you can let them go if they don't want to. But if you're, if you're married to a believer, then based on the teaching of Jesus, you need to stay, all right? Or if you separate, just remain separated or get back together, but don't get remarried. That's the basic teaching. So here's what I wanna do. In the time that we have together, I want to lay out kind of this core teaching of Jesus, especially focusing on his instructions for those of us who are married to a believer, or what like marriage to a believer is, um, and then come back and talk about two like practical implications. How do we live that out then? If if that's what, what does it look like to follow Jesus and not culture uh, in this important area of marriage? So there in your note sheet, you have a section that is called Christ, Culture, and the Cross. Jesus, marriage, and divorce. So let's jump in. So we've seen, so we've seen, he says, if you're single, you can either get married, and of course, that'd be to a believer, as we'll see later in this chapter, or you can stay single. Uh, if you're married to a non-believer, stay if they're willing, but if they don't, if, if they don't want to stay, you can let them go, right? You're not bound. Um, but I want to focus in on this teaching today, what he says to those of us who are believers or those of us who are, who are, who are, who are in a marriage, we're both uh, followers of Jesus. And so here's the basic principle. What, what, what we're going to learn today is if you're married, uh, keep your commitment. All right, so we live in a culture today, and we'll talk about this more later. This, it's basically all about your happiness. If you're happy in your marriage, stay. But if you're not happy in your marriage, then leave. But what we see, the followers of Jesus come at this differently uh, and Paul says, hey, this is not something I'm just making up as an apostle. This is something that's coming from Jesus himself. So look again at verse 10. <coughs> so in verse 10, he says, to the married, I give this command. And then he says, not I, but the Lord. So he's grounding his teaching in the teaching of Jesus himself. And just a quick sidebar here. You know, often today, people will say, oh, you can't really trust the Bible, you can't really trust what the Gospels and New Testament says, because they, the New Testament was really created out of the needs of the early church. It wasn't, really, it wasn't really tied to Jesus. It was like a whole new religion they were creating on their own. But I want you to notice here how carefully the Apostle Paul distinguishes his teaching 
from Jesus' teaching. He is very clear. Hey, when Jesus has spoken on an issue, that's the final word. When he's not, then as an apostle led by the Holy Spirit, I'll speak to you what God is calling. So he, he, and so the question is, what teaching is he talking about? So I, wanna, I want us to do a little Bible study together on this, right? So, uh, so the principle is if you're married, keep your commitment. Paul says that's based on the teaching of Jesus. So what's he talking about? So let's, let me give you a little backdrop. At the time of Jesus, there were two very powerful rabbinic schools. One was led by a rabbi named Hillel. The other was by a rabbi named Shammai. These are both contemporaries of Jesus to some extent. Uh, one lived pretty much the same, uh, same timeline of Jesus. One was, you know, died when Jesus was maybe 10 or something like that. But there's these two. And so, so these, these two rabbinic, skill, uh, uh, rabbinic schools, they, they kind of approach the Torah, the law of God, in different ways, and their interpretations vary. And so the school of Shammai tended to be much uh, more conservative, and the school of Hillel much more liberal. And one of the ways in which one of the areas they disagreed on is what is, according to the law of God, what is permissible, what is legitimate grounds to get a divorce. And the key passage that teaches on this in the uh, Old Testament Torah, the, the books of, of Moses, is in Deuteronomy 24. And so I want you to look at this for a couple reasons today. One now and one later. And so in Deuteronomy 24, let's walk through this very famous passage which was the crux of the, the issue. And so this is a very long if-then statement, all right? So here we go. So if a man marries a woman who becomes what? Displeasing, Displeasing to him. Now, I'm going to ask any of you men. No, just kidding. No, just kidding. All right. So underline, underline, underline that word displeasing, all right? Underline that. So if a man marries a woman and she becomes displeasing to him, um, because he finds something what? Indecent. Okay? Underline that word. And then he writes her a certificate of divorce. So notice Moses doesn't say if this happens, he should write her. He's just assuming it will happen. So what is a certificate of divorce? Well, it's just the paperwork that proves that the wife is legally divorced, catch this, that gives her the right to remarry. This is very significant because let's say a husband gets mad, says, I divorce you. She says, okay, she goes out, finds someone else and marry, then he comes back and he says, I never divorced you. She'd now be guilty of adultery. So she needs the paperwork to show that she's legally divorced. And so, so the law says, hey, if a man finds something displeasing in his wife because there's something indecent, and he gives her a certificate of divorce. It's just what they did. He said, um, and then he gives it to her, and he sends her from, her from his house, and then after she leaves, she becomes a wife of another man, right? So she remarries, and her second husband dislikes her. Underline that word. This woman's in for a hard life, right? <laughs> she needs to choose some better guys. All right. So dislikes her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, right? So are you with me still? No. Okay, this woman's been, now she's got two certificates, <laughs> and she's got two exes, and uh, she's getting no alimony because no kids. Anyway, and so, um, and so after she leaves her house, she becomes wife of another man. And so her second husband dislikes her, gives her, so the, 
Okay, and now he sends her away for his house, or if he dies, then here's the rule. Here's the law. We've had a long if. (laughs) Now here comes the then. Then, her first husband who divorced her, the original husband, he's not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. Now we're not going to go into all that, but, but here's the main thing I want you to catch. This is the key passage of scripture that talks about divorce in the law that the rabbis disagreed on. So the rule was, hey, if, you're mar- if this woman is married, she gets the divorce, then she marries another guy and he divorces her or dies, here's the rule, you can't go back to number one. So number one, you better be careful. Because if you give her a divorce and she le- you can't get her back. Right? Uh, a law probably to, to protect the wife. Right? Now, uh, this is the key issue. So the question is, so what are legitimate grounds of divorce? And you have these two schools of thought. So Shammai, the more con- he's the more uh, conservative guy, says when it says something displeasing, that's indecent, it's talking about sexual immorality. That she had an affair with another man. And that's the only grounds for divorce. School of Hillel said, well, it doesn't really say that. It says something displeasing a couple times. We think any time a man is displeased that he can divorce his wife. It can be literally This is like actual examples given later. He doesn't find her attractive anymore. She burned the toast this morning one too many times. It's a literal example, okay? So he has absolute right to divorce his wife, catch this, for any and every reason. Are you with me? Two schools of thought. So in Matthew 19, the religious leaders come to Jesus to ask him to weigh in on this important issue. And let's see what Jesus says. So in Matthew 19, there in your note sheet, some Pharisees, one of the religious leaders groups, they came to test him. Like, where does he stand? And they said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife, catch this language, for any and every reason? Where do you stand? With Hillel, with Shammai. And what Jesus is going to do is fascinating because I think this is very, very significant for a lot of questions, a lot of issues of our own day. He's going to skip Deuteronomy, and he's going to go back to the beginning, to God's original vision for marriage. He's going to say, hey, forget about what law. Let's go back to what God intended from the start, his original vision. And so he's going to go back, and he's going to quote from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and put them together. And these, these two passages have significant issues for human sexuality in our day beyond divorce and remarriage. And so he says, <clears throat> he says, um, haven't you read, which is a little bit of a dig. <laughs> These are people who know the Bible like the back of their hand. Uh, haven't you read that in the beginning, and he's gonna quote Genesis one, the creator made them what? Amen. Catch it, not, not multiple genders. We got male, we got females. This is a big issue in our culture right now. Is, is sex and gender tied or is it not tied? 
And Jesus goes back to the beginning and says, hey, he's made us male and female. It's part of our core identity as human beings. And he said, then he quotes from chapter two, and for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. There'll be a new unity. So we got, notice he's also now defining what marriage is. Marriage is male and female, right? Marriage is not male and male. It's not female and female. So, so Jesus goes back to define what marriage is, not based on Deuteronomy 24, but on God's vision. That here is God's vision, one man, one woman, for a lifetime of love and commitment, a new unity that should never be broken. That's God's vision. That's God's vision. So they're like, yeah, but what about Deuteronomy 24? And so so they're going to ask him uh, more about that. Um, And so he... uh, so they said, well, why then did Moses command, this is Deuteronomy 24, that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Notice how they're interpreting it. Jesus, he says, Moses commanded this. He said, Moses didn't command this. He what? what? What does he say next? He permitted it. And why did he permit it? Because you all so messed up. That's in the Greek. All right? So... He says, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were so what? Because you're so evil. Because you're so messed up. Because you're so self-absorbed. Because you're so insensitive. This was like the lesser of two evils. And he says, says, but it was not this way from the beginning. That's not God's vision. And then look what he says next. He gives his ruling on this. He says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for, social, for sexual immorality, that indecent thing, right, and marries another woman, commits what? So I want you to catch this. He's talking to this group of men. For many of them, their idea is, is I can divorce my wife anytime I want to as long as I find anything displeasing to me. And as long as I do it the legal way and give her a certificate of divorce, God is good with this. And Jesus says, no. Will you just divorce your wife because you're tired of her to get someone else? All you're doing is committing legalized adultery. It's not, this is not God's vision, all right? But he does give this exception. He says that, that if there's sexual immorality involved, that's an option, right? So this seems to be the teaching that the Apostle Paul is referring to when he says, I give you this command, but not I, but the Lord. That if you're both believers, you stay together. And if you can't stay together, then you can get a divorce or separate. But if you do, you don't have the option of remarrying someone else. You, you need to come back together and reconcile or stay uh, separate, all right? now. Of course, this raises a lot of questions of like, well, are there exceptions to this? And I think obviously Jesus gives us one here of sexual immorality. Let me just say from a pastor's point of view that I I think there are times when sexual immorality is involved that the best thing is, it's like the lesser of two evils, is to get a divorce. I think there are times like that. 
And I would counsel someone now in certain circumstances, but can I tell you this? That usually, not always, but usually, that if there's been sexual immorality and affair that's broken a marriage, that it's much better if both, believe, if both believers are willing to come under the leadership of Jesus to do the hard work and re- be restored. And I will often tell couples when I meet with them in situations like this that, hey, I know this is just like the most painful thing right now and it's horrible, but can I tell you this, that if you'll come under the leadership of your king and you'll surrender to him, God can do an amazing work and he can make your marriage stronger than it's ever been. And that there will come a day when you will look back and say it was the worst day of our life and I never want to go through that. I would never wish it on anyone. But I also would not change it because of that day. This day happened. And I've seen this happen time and time again. So there's times when it is the best option to get out. But I think that if you're in a situation, um, especially, you know, especially the person's not repentant or whatever, but if you're in a situation where both people are really willing to come under the leadership of Jesus, he can do amazing things and restore and heal and take that marriage to a place that it's never been in the past, even in the beginning, right? So that's one exception that Jesus gives. And you say, well, are there any others? And Christians will disagree on this. I understand that. Some will say no. I tend to think yes. As I read the teaching of Jesus, as I watch the way that Jesus interpreted the law of God, for example, the Sabbath, I think there, there may be times where someone claims to be a believer, but they're just not acting like it. And there's, there's, there's danger in the marriage. There's extreme abuse going on. There, there's the, the person's kind of left or abandoned. There's huge drug things. There may be times where there are others. There are other things we say, hey, this is the lesser of two evils. But the main thing I want you to catch is that for Jesus, for us as followers of Jesus, that the Jesus is clear if you're married, Right? This is his calling on us to make it work. And that leads to the implications. So there in your note sheet, we've got a, a couple section, a section called Christ, Culture, and the Cross, two key implications. So let's jump in. So, so here's implication number one. That, and, and I'm really speaking to those, this is where we're both believers, right? Because Paul has been already spoken. If you're single, you can either get married, you can say single. If you're married to a non-believer, stay if you can, but if they want to leave, let them go. But I want to really hone in on this teaching of Jesus today that Paul bases his teaching of marriage on. And so here's the implication. If you're married to a believer, it goes like this. If you're married, make it work. This is the basic teaching. Now, this is really fascinating because remember this whole series is about what does it look like to follow Christ and the values that he models in his cross as opposed to following the the vision and values of the culture of Corinth or the culture of our day. And when you look at our day, um, that, that, that kind of the culture of our day is pretty much like this, that God, the top priority in life is to be happy. In our culture, happiness. And so, so what you need to do in our culture is do whatever it takes to make you happy. So if being married makes you happy, go ahead and get married. 
And Keshis, you should stay in that marriage as long as it makes you happy. But if it no longer makes you happy, you should leave the marriage. In fact, if you don't, you're not living an authentic life. You need to be true to you. You need to follow your heart. Are you with me? That's our culture. So marriage is seen as a, a short-term contract to be committed to as long as we're happy. That's our culture. Jesus comes and says, no, God's vision is to, is to bring one man and one woman together for a lifetime of love and commitment in which, under which that we create a safe place to bring up the next generation. They can thrive. That's his vision, right? Now, when, we, when I say make it work, I want to be really clear here because I, this is a mistake we've often made in Christian circles. We, we, we read passages like this and then we, we think that make it work means just stay no matter what in the most horrible relationship possible because it's what we're told to do. But what I want you to catch is that's not Jesus' vision. His vision is to go back to the beginning. And if you've got a bad marriage, the solution is not to stay in a bad marriage. The solution is to make a bad marriage a good marriage. Right? That's the vision. And so the question is, well, well, how do we do that? How do we make a marriage a good marriage, even if it's currently a horrible marriage? And obviously, this is a huge topic, but I want to give you two critical steps that I believe are at the heart of the process. The, the first two steps that we need to take. So there in your note sheet, step number one, is we need to make a commitment. We need to make a commitment, or if you prefer, start with a commitment. So catch this, in our culture, here's, when people say, I do today in our culture, here's our commitment. I promise to stay with you as long as you make me happy. That's what the vow means in our culture. I promise to stick with you as long as this is making my life better. But for the believer, that's not it. For the believer, it's no, no. Jesus said that we're to make marriage work. And so I'm committed, come hell or high water. Now again, we're not talking about extreme, unusual situation, but in general, I'm committed to making this marriage work. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus that I, I really make my marriage work. It's part of my core commitment of following Jesus. And it's interesting because, catch this, I, I believe it's this commitment that creates the security in which a marriage can thrive. Can I tell you something? My, my, my parents, when they first came to Jesus, they were both first-generation Christians and neither one of them had any model of a godly family. They both came out of fairly dysfunctional families to, you know, just in different ways. And I know my mom would often tell me in the early years that if it hadn't been for Jesus, they would have got a divorce a long time ago. In the first five years of their marriage especially were horrible. They're both very independent, headstrong people. And it was miserable. And the only reason their marriage survived 
was because they were committed to do what Jesus said. And under that commitment, then, the Lord could begin to shape and begin to teach. And their marriage got, was able to be transformed. Now, was it ever a great marriage? I don't know if it ever got great, but it was good. And can I tell you, for myself, my sisters growing up, a safe place we could grow. And out of these two polluted streams of their past, they formed a new stream, a stream of living water for generations. And I now see that in my kids and grandkids. And it happened, and it only happened because of Matthew 19 and their commitment to Jesus. It's where it starts. That we, we, we can't enter into marriage. For those of you who are single, we can't enter into marriage while I'm in for this. Kind of, we don't put it in words, but I'm in for this as long as it works for me. It starts with a commitment. You know, one of the, the uh, couples I talked about last week, Drs. Les and Les Parrott, these very, very great, good Christian counselors, therapists, psychologists. So we, you, we use their material here for our premarital course, Saving Your Marriage Before It Starts. So long before that material, they wrote a book by that title. In that book, they cite a study. One of the reasons I, I love the parents is they're, they're just, they do great research as well as being committed to scripture, but, but they cite a story, done, uh, the, the, um, a cite research that was done by three doctors. Uh, they, they studied 6,000 marriages, 3,000 divorces to determine why some marriages work and others end in divorce. And you know what they found? The number one difference of those that made it and those who didn't was commitment. In fact, this is what the parents write in their book. They said, there may be nothing more important in a marriage than the determination that it shall persist. And with such a determination, individuals force themselves to adjust and to accept situations which would seem sufficient grounds for a breakup if continuation of the marriage was not the primary primary. So I think the first step is we make a commitment. We know, hey, we're Christians. We don't divorce. In the normal course of things, we're Christians. We're under the leadership of King Jesus, and this is the orders of our king. And so we need to figure this out. We need to go before Jesus and figure out how to make this thing work. Because we know he wouldn't ask us to do something that's impossible. And we know he's given us the power of the Holy Spirit. And so let's go before him and let's figure this out. So it starts with a commitment. The second key step is then to choose love or choose to love if you prefer. And this is so important um, because in, in our culture today, love is usually defined as a feeling. And, and the, the kind of the cultural narrative is when the feeling goes, I have, I, there's nothing I can do. I'm at the mercy of my feelings. So if I don't feel in love with you anymore, then I need to get out because, again, I'll be inauthentic if I'm not. And we all know we have to be true to ourselves. And so our culture today is at the mercy of their feelings. But feelings are fickle. Feelings can change, right? And what we see in the New Testament is New Testament love is defined completely differently. The love is much more than a feeling. I believe that mature love has feeling, but love is more than a feeling. Love is a choice. And it's a choice to put the needs and interests of someone else above my own. And it's a choice, catch us, to seek 
the other person's highest good. And this is our top calling as followers of Jesus, to live lives of love. And can I tell you something? Much of the New Testament is written to help us understand what it looks like to live a life of love. And the tragic thing is, as believers, is that we've often ignored this advice or this teaching in all of our relationships, but especially in marriage. Like, let me give you an example. You know, this whole series about what does it look like to follow Christ in the way of the cross, right? I think the best passage for me personally in the New Testament that explains what that looks like is Philippians chapter 3, or Philippians chapter 2, rather. We've looked at it several times in this series. That's why we keep coming back to it. And Paul is talking about what does it look like to follow Jesus in the way of his cross, and, and he's talking about how to do relationships in the new community of Jesus. And so he says there on your note sheet, he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in what? Humility, and that's critical, right? In humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. And in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to define the mindset of Christ Jesus. And he says, very famous passage, many will remember, he says, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be held on to. But he humbled himself and emptied himself, and he took on the form of a servant as a human being. And then once there, he went to the lowest level and served us, even to the point of being humiliated on a Roman cross. This, he says, Jesus is our model of how to do relationship. This is what it looks like to love well. So let me ask you something. What do you think would happen in a marriage where both partners, and it takes two, right? But what would happen in a marriage where both partners said, as followers of Jesus, we are committed to learn to live a life of love. And that starts in our home, in our marriage. Can I tell you something? If the goal of this world is to be happy, the goal Jesus has for our lives is to be holy, to be transformed, to be like him in his core character. Can I tell you something? If you want to be transformed, there's no better environment than marriage. (laughs) Because marriage surfaces the worst of us about day one, right? Like there's no other relationship because it's so close and so in. There's no other relationship that reveals our selfishness faster than marriage, right? There's no other relationship that that uh, surfaces our immaturity faster than marriage. There's no other relationship that focus that reveals our lack of character as marriage. Like you can think you're doing pretty well. You can think you're pretty mature. You can think you're pretty good at following Jesus. Then you get married. And all of a sudden it reveals. And so, catch this, marriage is a beautiful laboratory. Marriage is a great context for growth. Because it reveals our weaknesses. And there it can drive us to Jesus. Just say, wow. 
This is who I am. I need some deep transformation here. And Jesus, what does this look like to come under your, would you teach me how to live a life of humility and a life of love? Would you teach me how to start with my spouse and put their needs and interests above my own and to serve them well? Let me ask you something. What do you think would happen in any marriage where both, where both spouses said, I'm totally in. I want to please Jesus as my top priority. That means I want to learn how to live a life of love. So Jesus, I want to come under your leadership to learn how to love my spouse as you've loved me. What would happen in a marriage like that? I can tell you, it will thrive. Show me a marriage where, where both people are deeply submitted to Jesus and their goal is to outserve one another. That marriage will thrive. And can I tell you that? No matter how sick that marriage is, if that choice is made, that marriage can be revived and it can thrive. And the feelings of love will return. And you say, is that really possible? Absolutely. Absolutely. If we just get serious about following Jesus. Sometimes we, we, just, we think that we can become like Jesus by not following Jesus. You know, we think, we think like trans- transformation happens by osmosis. It doesn't. It happens through deep surrender and listening and following. You know, today we started the day with a story of this, uh, this couple that came into my office. And I'm telling you, it, came, it was a wreck. They come in, and, and I already know. I, I know this already. I don't know all the details, but I know that the wife has decided to divorce her husband. And this is a last-ditch effort. And for whatever reason, they're willing to meet with me, even though that decision was made. And we began to, as I began to unpack their story, and I listened and asked questions, and we processed together, I began to share these steps with them. We began to talk about what Jesus says about leaving a marriage and how if we're serious about following him, that's not really an option, you know, given these other exceptions. And all, and, but in a situation like this, you know, that's there's, there's not really an option. Unless you just want to stay separate forever, but to pursue another relationship, that's not really an option. And then we begin to talk about this, this surrender to Jesus and what this would look like. And I, I share with them what I shared with you earlier. I know this is such a painful place, but I promise you, if you come under the leadership of Jesus, but, and for the guy, this was a wake-up call. Like for 15 years, she'd been telling him this, and he just hadn't been listening. But this was now a wake-up call, and he was finally in a mode of like, oh, sh- I need to take this seriously. <laughs> That's not what you thought it was. <laughs> and... And it was, and I, I don't know why, but they decided to listen. And I said, you, you, you both need to be in counseling and you, you need to be like, you need to unpack this. But I promise you, if you'll follow Jesus, he can turn this thing around. Hey, but, but you talking to the husband, you, you've, got, you've got to face up to your issues. You've been living in denial for 15 years. You've got issues. And Jesus wants to change that. And you have to be willing to change. 
You, can't, you just can't play around with Jesus. You have to listen and follow Jesus. And I said to the woman, and you have to cut off this relationship with this man. This marriage can go nowhere when you're in the process of falling in love with a man outside your marriage. Like, you've got to cut that thing off. Absolutely. You can't play with fire like that. But if you both will listen and follow, the Lord can turn this thing around. And for whatever reason, they listen. And can I tell you, within one year, their relationship was radically transformed. And within two to three years, they came to me and they said, how would you feel about us leading a life group for couples who were where we were? That they could experience the transformation that we did. Man, woman, that's the gospel. If the gospel can't change us in our marriages, what the heck are we telling them that the gospel is the, the answer to the world's problems? When Christians can't get along in our marriages, it's like this blaring sign that Jesus is a fraud. And we need to deeply repent. And too many times the church of Jesus has been just like the culture. You don't make me happy, I'm out of here. And then people think the gospel doesn't work. It's not the gospel that doesn't work, it's weird on working. We're proclaiming there'll be followers of Jesus, we're not following. And we're giving him a black eye and driving his name through the muck, saying that the gospel, this word of incredible reconciliation between God and man and between us and one another, but we can't get along in our marriage. I'm not here to pretend that marriage is simple or easy, but I'm here to tell you that it's a great environment for transformation. <laughs> Probably one of the best available. And if we will seriously submit to Jesus, he can fix anything. If we can't, then we will go away and be just like the world. And so it starts with this commitment and a deep surrender to Jesus to truly live out a life of love starting in our marriage. There's a second implication though, and this is for those of you who have already um, transgressed the command of Jesus. So I'm well aware that in a congregation like this, for those of you joining us online, there's probably some here today that are very uncomfortable with this teaching because, because for whatever reason, you did listen to Corinth. You did listen to culture, and you weren't happy in your marriage and got out of it. You don't really have a biblical reason for it. You just, it was just kind of like, uh, I was making me happy, and I don't want this thing anymore, and so I'm leaving it. And now you're remarried, and so you're listening to this teaching, and so you're saying, well, what do I do now? I've already blown it. I've already sinned. I've already told you, like, what do I do now? And so I want to give you two steps as well. Like, what do we do when we find ourselves in this position? So number two goes like this. If you're divorced and remarried, and I mean that in, in like a non-biblical, you, you know what I'm saying? Like, it shouldn't have happened. Then the two steps are to repent and then move on. And both are very important. So when we find ourselves that we, whether we realize it or not, whether it was conscious or unconscious, that we've disobeyed Jesus in such an important area of our life, I think first of all we have to acknowledge there's going to be consequences to this. You know, we see this in Scripture that when we sin with a high hand against the Lord, that He'll forgive us, but there's often consequences. You know, the the person that's destroyed their liver with alcohol can repent and be made right and 
get clean, but it doesn't mean that, liver, that your liver is going to be healed, right? And, and when we, we, like God hates divorce. We know that verse from Malachi, God hates divorce, but that's not some kind of religious rule. He hates it because of what it does, because how destructive it is. And so there's certain parts of our past, we can't go back and fix everything. That's just a given. But if we want to walk well with Jesus, the first step is to repent. And so what does that mean? Well, this summer, you know, Dre did this great little series. Dre and Joel uh, did this great series called Wholehearted. And one of the messages, Dre went into great detail about what he calls, uh, and I love this language, it's kind of a beautiful act of repentance. So what does it mean to repent? It really involves two things. Number one is to confess, right? To repent means to confess. And to confess just simply means to come clean and call things by their true name. So often when we sin, we, we want to justify, rationalize, excuse, minimize. And, to, repent, and to, to confess means we come into the presence of God and we call things by its true name. We just say, this is the truth. Like I rationalize this or whatever, but I, I sinned, here's what I did. And we're, we're not making excuses. We're calling it. So it starts with confession, but then it, the, the, the second part of repentance is to turn. You know, in the Greek, the word means to change the way we think. It's, it's to do a U-turn. And this is the way I was going. And so often in life, like if you're, you're divorced, you can't go back to that first marriage. But what you can do is surrender, say, Jesus, I was wrong. And if I had to do it again, I, I wouldn't. I surrender your leadership. And I think part of that repentance is often going back to those that we've hurt the most. Maybe it's an ex-spouse. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's our children. Maybe it's our church, our life group that tried to talk us out of this and we, we just said, no, we wouldn't hear it or our pastors or whatever. And just to go back and just say, I, because here's the thing, well, I want you, divorce is a sin against the whole community. Every time that a, a, a couple that loves, it doesn't matter, it can be out in culture too, but it's, let's talk about it in the community. In the, in the cult, in the community of Jesus, that divorce is like, it's a tear in the social fabric of the community, that when you get divorced for an unbiblical reason, you make all of our marriages more vulnerable. And so part of this coming back and repenting and saying I was wrong, it helps repair some of that damage. For your children, they, see, they no longer see, well my parents got divorced, so when, that's an option for me. They now have a mom or a dad coming back and said, I did this, I was wrong. And you're helping reestablish God's vision right, for marriage. So we repent, but then the second thing is we move on. And, and we can't move on until we've repented. Like, we have to repent first. You can't move on until we repent. When we repent, then we move on. So let me catch this. For those of you who are in this situation, you find yourself in this situation, when you own it, you confess it, you turn from it, then you move on. Like there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short. We've all done stupid things. We've all rebelled. And the beauty of the cross is that he forgives. He runs to us to restore. And so for those of you in this situation, what do you do? You move on. You embrace your new marriage. You commit yourself to it. 
you love well, you build a marriage that brings honor to Jesus and what Jesus does in a life, how he can restore. And this is important because sometimes in Christian circles it's been taught that if you get an unbiblical marriage, you're still married to the original person. Some of them say you need to go back. This is one of the reasons I took you to Deuteronomy 24. Because Deuteronomy really 24 is very clear. When you get divorced and you go get remarried, that breaks that first marriage. You don't go back. Right? So what that means is that we've all sinned. We just come before the Lord. We own that. We repent. And then we move on and say, God, would you now take what I did, which was evil, and would you in your supernatural power turn it for good? Amen? And so we don't want to live in the past. We want to move into the future. But as followers of Jesus, we can never move into the future until we've faced and been honest about the past. We have to own it. And then the Lord raises us up, welcomes us, and says, go and sin no more. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. So Father, we come before you and just such a powerful teaching, such an incredible vision you have for our marriages. And Lord, so I pray for us here, whether our marriage is really in a desperate spot right now, whether we're doing well, whether it's thriving, that, that we would embrace this high vision of marriage. And we come underneath your leadership to listen and follow so that we can show what you can do in the world with lives that are submitted to you. And that our marriages would become a hallmark of the beautiful movement of Jesus. That while look at those people, it's like their marriages thrive. Maybe they found something that's real. And so let me pray. And I, I pray for those here that find themselves in a place of, the, of realizing that what they did and what they've justified is not really right. But I just pray that you would give them the grace of a true and deep repentance. And then from that, they rise up and feel your arms around them, just saying, I love you. Now go and sin no more. Follow me. Build your, build your new life. Show the world what I can do in this marriage, what I, what I can do out of brokenness. And so, Lord, we come before you in Jesus' name. Just pray you be moving all over this worship center. At the beginning, we invited you in. We said that when we gather in the name of Jesus, the power of the Lord is there. And so, Lord, I pray you be speaking to each of us according to our need, whether it's a word of encouragement, a word of rebuke, a word of correction, a word of healing, a word of hope that you would be working supernaturally. And as we sing this beautiful song at this fresh wind, we pray you be blowing through our lives even now as we worship you together. In Jesus' name, amen.